If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Peter. We're going to start in chapter 1, verse 22. We're talking about the basics of relationship. The basics of relationship. What awesome worship today. Thank you so much for your part in that. The basics of relationship. Choosing to forgive. I want to do something for just a moment. As you're getting your place, I want you to think about this. Who is the person who's hurt you the most? Who is the person who has done that one thing that's been the hardest for you to forgive? I want you to, I want you to visualize that person for a moment. I want you to think about that. I want you to put a name and a, and a body to that. Maybe it's someone who, who walked out on you, betrayed you, lied to you, abused you, stole from you, falsely accused you, cheated on you. In some way, that person has hurt you, and that's the one person you've had the hardest person forgiving. Here's what's interesting. We all have someone we loved or trusted who hurt us deeply. They disappointed us. They, they did evil to us. They did something that was wrong. And what's so easy to do, in the, and you say, well, Pastor, I don't like to think about that. I, I don't want to talk about that today. You know, let's go someplace else with this. Here's the problem. It's easy to ignore the pain, and that's exactly the wrong thing to do. Last November, I was getting out of the shower one morning, and, and as I got out, I, I twisted my left knee just a little bit wrong, and I heard this really funny, crunchy noise. It was kind of like having Rice Krispies in your knee. I don't recommend that noise, but that's the way it was. And I said to Kathy, ooh, I did something a little different. It will be okay because that's what guys do. And so I waited a couple weeks. I went to the doctor. And he said, oh, he says, uh, or she said, first she said, let's go get some x-rays. And we got the, the MRI and they came back and they said, your knee's unstable. You've torn your meniscus. It's, it's a big tear and it's flipped over and you're walking on this flipped over flap in your knee and it's not a good thing. You need to have surgery. Now this was in November, 1st of November. And what they said is, here's the deal. Because so many people are trying to get under their deductible, we can't schedule surgery until January. So for the next three months, just wear a brace and live with it. Isn't that fun? But here's what happened. I made the, the, the time for it, and I, and, I, and I made the schedule for it, and I got scheduled for surgery uh, January 17th, 19th, somewhere in there. And I was going to have surgery. But around Christmas, wearing the brace, my knee started to feel better. Oh, the crunchy noise was still there, and it still felt kind of weird when you walked on it, but it didn't hurt so much anymore. And finally, the day of the surgery came, or the week before the surgery, and I said, hey, doc, I've got this great idea. Let's not do surgery on my knee. And he says, well, you can do that. I said, really? And he said, yeah. He said, you'll destroy your knee. I'll replace your knee in a couple of years if you do that. Okay, maybe not such a great idea. Here's what happens. He said, if you ignore the pain long enough, the pain will go away, but the damage you're doing every day is still there. And you say, Pastor, what in the world does that have to do with with choosing to forgive? If you ignore the pain and you stuff it down, the pain's still there, you're just ignoring it, and the damage is still being done. You don't believe me? Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. It says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. When you stuff that down, when you have unresolved anger in your life, when you never resolve that issue that needed to be resolved, that thing will continue to bubble up and it will cause this root of bitterness that will grow up and the damage is being done. And Peter understood this. He didn't feel like he could forgive himself for what he did to Jesus. And when he writes, there's this undertow all the time of what happened with him and what happened with the Lord. And finally, I think he deals with it. Look at 1 Peter 
we're going to see how God wants to remove the pain, rebuild the relationship, and restore your joy. He wants to take that pain away. He wants to rebuild that relationship and restore the joy. What are my options? What are my choices? What options do I have when I'm mistreated? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, we're going to read all the way into chapter 2, verse 10. This is what it says. Now that you have purified yourselves, how? By obeying the truth so that you have sincere, or in other words, there is pure. You have this pure or sincere love for your brothers. Love one another deeply. We'll look at that word. That's a very strong word from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Is it green in Reading right now? For June, is this amazingly green? What will happen two weeks from now? The grass will wither and the flowers will fall, no matter what we think. Look, at it, it continues. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, because of all this, because we're temporary, God is eternal. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure. Same thing, that, 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 that word that we were given before, that sincere, that pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living rock or the living stone, the Petra, the living stone rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, Petras, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're going to come back and we're going to look at that image. That's a very powerful image that Peter's just given us. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone or a rock in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or the cornerstone, the one in which everything is measured from. That's Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Now look at verses 9 and 10. Love these verses. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What are my options? Really three options. Number one, we can choose to retaliate aggressively. When you're wrong, when someone has done something to you, you can retaliate, and you can do it not just, just in a little way. You can go for full-scale revenge on how to get even. It t- reminds me of the story, the old story. The guy comes in, and he says, Doctor, I was bitten by a dog. And the, and the doctor says, let me do some tests. And he, he comes back in a few minutes, and he says, I've got terrible news for you. You have rabies. The dog was rabid, and you have rabies. I'm, I'm going to give you a series of injections, and the injections are horribly painful uh, you know, this is going to be a very tough few weeks in your life, but, the, but I will go and get the first injection. And as he goes out, the nurse is standing there, and the man says to the nurse, can I have some paper and a pen? 
The nurse doesn't think too much about it, gives him paper and a pen. The doctor comes back with the injection, ready to give him the first injection. And the man's scribbling furiously, writing on the paper. And the doctor says, whoa, 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 wait, I'm going to give you these injections. It's terribly painful, but you will not die. You don't need to make out your will. He says, doctor, I'm not making out a will. I'm making out a list of people I'm going to bite. (laughs) Revenge. I'm going to get even. If this is going to be very painful, then I want to go bite somebody. And that's the way we respond a lot of times when we've been hurt. Romans 12, 19, look what it says. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. And we want to respond, we want to, we want to do that. And Peter says here, to get rid of these things. In chapter 2, verse 1, rid yourselves of all malice and slander. Chuck Swindoll probably does the best job in, on this word study of anybody I've seen. Malice, he says, is the Greek word here is a general word for the wickedness that characterizes those entrenched in the world's system. It's a, it's a general wickedness. It's malice. It's, it's always looking for an evil way to respond. Guile, the Greek word means two-facedness or deception or trickery. In its earliest form, the word meant to catch with bait. All of you fishermen out there, you are guile. You're you're exercising guile. You're showing guile in your life. You're you're trying to catch with bait. You're throwing something out there, and you're alluring those poor, innocent little fish to their death. You terrible people, you. It's okay with fish. Not so much when it's a coworker or when it's a family member. Hypocrisy, the Greek word here means to act apart, to hide behind a mask, to appear to be someone else. This is what happens when we try to be someone or something we are not. Envy. Envy is not only hidden resentment over another's advantage, but wanting the same advantage for yourself. Not that, that you want their car, you want their car to be in your driveway without their payments. I think that's the best concept. Slander is even more vicious. Literally, the, mean, the word means evil speaking. It, all, it occurs most often when the victim is not there to offer defense or set the record straight, often disguised as rumor or bad news or just passing on information, like in a prayer request. He writes it. I just read it. Slander is disparaging gossip that destroys one's confidence in another, discoloring or harming that person's reputation. It can be as as mild as bad-mouthing or as vile as backstabbing. When the tongue is used for slander, it becomes a lethal weapon. And Peter says, I want you to look at this as if you're taking off this garment. To, To rid yourself literally means to take it off and put it aside. Something that you've used, it's like uh, I was out painting the house and I took those garments off when I came in because they smelled bad and they looked bad and, and, and I didn't want them in the house. And you take them off and you put something clean on. He says, get rid of this stuff. And did you notice in verse 20, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 22, it talks about sincere love, sincere in motives, sincere in your actions, sincere in your purpose and your, and your meaning. He says, I've called you to something else, not this aggressive revenge, but this pure, sincere love, to love one another deeply. The word deeply there means stretched or strained to the maximum. It's as if you've taken this elastic thing and you stretch it and stretch it and stretch it until it won't stretch anymore and you pull a little harder. It's the same word that's used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when it says in Mark uh, chapter 14, 33, it says he was deeply distressed. 
And Peter says, don't you understand? God's called us to a love that's deep and stretched and, and it's strained to the maximum. Let God take care of it. Here's a second option. We can choose to react passively. We can choose to react passively, not aggressively, not in retaliation. You just decide, you know what? I'm just going to let it roll off my back. I'm just going to forget about it. I'm going to bury it deep. I'm not going to talk about it. In fact, what I might do is I'm going to have a little pity party. Poor me. Uh, poor little me. I'm, I've been cheated, been mistreated. When will I be loved? I think there was a song like that, wasn't it? And that's what we do. We go around and we're singing, I've been cheated, been mistreated. When will I be loved? And we go around all the time and the Lord says, wait a second. That can be actually more destructive than retaliation. Another story, Chuck Swindoll tells a story, the think the best, but uh, Chuck Swindoll tells a story uh, of the Korean soldiers that were there, and they didn't like the cooking and cleaning part that they had to do in Korea, so they hired a Korean, a, a native Korean person, this little man, this, this young man, this teenager, and they asked him to cook and clean, but they were so mean to this guy, and they would put Vaseline on all of the, the, the knobs on the kitchen, and so he would go to turn a knob, and his hand would be all greasy, and he hated it, and they would rick up this, this bucket of water over the door, and they would op- he would open the door, and the bucket would come down and splash him and just soak him with water. But the final insult is one day, it was pouring rain, and he didn't want to get his sandals wet, and so he left his sandals in the, in the hut, and he went out to do something for these guys, and when he came back, they'd nailed his shoes, his sandals, to the floor. And he was trying to pry them up. His prized sandals, he didn't have that much, and one of the soldiers felt sorry, and he went to the other guys and said, guys, this is horrible. I mean, the teasing has got to stop. Uh, let's not do this anymore. Well, let's, let's stop this. And so they brought the Korean boy in, and, and they said to him, you know, we're so sorry. We're not going to do this anymore. And the Korean says to him, no more greasy on the, on the kitchen knobs. No, no grease. No more water on the head. No, no more water on the head. No more shoes nailed to the floor. No, no more shoes to nailed to the floor. He says, good. I no more spit in your soup. You see, even when you're passive, there's that bitterness. And there are ways of being passive-aggressive, and and that's what happens so many times. And you say, oh, that's funny when it happens there. It's not funny when it happens in your family, and when it happens in your church, and when it happens in your city, and when it happens in our government. And that's what's happened. We've, We've tried to put this down. If you don't write anything else down, write down this phrase, buried hurts always surface. Buried hurts always surface. Unresolved anger fosters bitterness and those buried hurts. That's exactly what Hebrews 12 was saying. Don't bury those things. Resolve the anger. And Peter warns of that when he talks about the deceit, about the envy, about that hypocrisy. Those are passive things. It's not that you're out retaliating. It's not like the malice. It's just the deceit. It's, it's trying to act like you're someone that you're really not. How's everything going? Oh, I'm just fine. And meanwhile, inside, you've buried that hurt. The Lord says, don't do it. Because the heart is there. And Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So you can retaliate aggressively. You can passively try to get by and stuff it down or or act like it didn't happen. Or here's the third option. We can choose to respond in mercy. And that's what Peter's getting at. And and he finally gets around to it in verse 10 very clearly. Once you had received mercy, but now you... 
once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He said, God was merciful to us. We can extend mercy to others. And did you notice who he says we are? Who are we? Who are you? You are a chosen person. God chose you. We read the Old Testament. We read about Isaiah. We read about uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We read about all of these people in the Old Testament. They were God's chosen people. And Peter goes and he equates us with what happened in Israel. Not that God is doing away with his promises to Israel, but God has similarly chosen you and me. We're chosen. Exodus chapter 19, I want to go back there. I know that we don't have a lot of time today, but Exodus chapter 19, I want to look at that for just a minute because I think if you see the parallel, you'll begin to realize how fantastic this is. Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. If you don't want to turn there, just write it down. You can look later. It says, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, this is written to Moses. This is part of the Mosaic covenant. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations... You will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests or a royal priesthood and a holy nation. These are the words you're to speak to the Israelites. And just like Israel was the chosen people, look at the the language. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. The same words that Israel had are given to us. God says, I've chosen you. You know what the biggest surprise to me is? I said this in Sunday school, but I'm still blown away. Sometimes people say, well, I don't like this whole thing of God choosing different people. You know, why would he choose this person and not that? That's not what bothers me. It's not what bothers me. It's not that God would choose me over someone else. It's that God would choose any of us for any reason. He chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Israel went running away from him. He chose to make the gospel free and clear in America. And what have we done? We've run away from God. And our society is mirroring what happened in Israel. Don't you understand, folks? God says you are a chosen people who have turned your back on God. I think we pray the Lord's Prayer and we don't even understand what we're praying. We have been shown mercy. You, what do you mean? Well, look at part of the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 12. What does it say? Forgive us our debts as, like, we have forgiven our debtors. I want to ask you a question. Do you want God to forgive you like you've forgiven the person that you have not forgiven? Do you want God to forgive you like you have forgiven that person that you really haven't forgiven? You still hold that grudge against? Do you want God to forgive you the same way that you show forgiveness? I don't. I don't. And Peter finally got it. Did you notice the irony? Who's calling Jesus the rock? You remember back in Matthew 18, the Lord says to Peter, hey, Peter, in fact, his name is Cephas. Hey, Cephas, come here. You've been called Cephas up to this point, but you're not going to be called Cephas anymore. I'm going to call you the, the, the rock, except it's Petros. It's a small rock, a stone. Maybe a boulder size, but it's certainly not the rock of Gibraltar. I'm going to call you Petras. And on this rock, Petra, huge boulder, rock of Gibraltar, half of a mountain. On the top of of Mount Shasta, that's where I'm going to build my church. You're a little pebble, a boulder running down the side. But on this mountain, I'm going to build my church. And Peter now turns around and says, don't you understand? He is the rock. 
It's not me that you build the church on, Peter says. It's on the rock, the cornerstone. He's the one everything's measured from. He is the one. And he calls us to be living stones. Paul calls us living temples. We don't get the whole analogy. Let, let me go through it. If we don't get to the rest of this, this is, this is worth st- stopping here for. Because Peter has this imagery that, that's deep and wide, and, and it's meaningful if you get it. In the Old Testament, when Moses gave them the law, where did God show up? How was God in their midst? Well, they had the Ark of the Covenant. You remember that little ark? It was gold, and it was a, you know, if you've seen Raiders from the Lost Ark, you've seen the ark. But other, others of us have not actually seen it. It's this gold box. And it was in the Holy of Holies, and most of them didn't get to see it. So they didn't get to see the Ark of the Covenant. So where did they see God? Oh, there was this big, huge tent in the middle of all the other tents, and it was very ornate, and it had beautiful gold and all these other threads running through it. And they pitched this huge tent in the middle, and all of them always circled around, and God tabernacled. It was called the tabernacle. He tented. He tabernacled among them. And they saw the smoke and the fire every day. God was there in the presence, and when the smoke and the fire moved and they went with him and the smoke and the fire didn't move, they had God in their midst. In the time of Jesus, Peter is there, and he says, don't you understand, everybody's been going to the temple looking for God, and it says that the Word became flesh, and he tabernacled, that's what John 1 says, he tabernacled among us, he tented among us, he had this temporary dwelling among us, and he came and he lived in our midst, and Peter says, don't you understand, we came to the temple, and the temple is this one that's built and growing up, and because God was in our midst again, the smoke and the fire, except it wasn't smoke and fire, it was a person, Jesus. Peter says, don't you understand? He's gone, but the analogy is still there because Jesus says, if I leave, I will tabernacle among you with the Holy Spirit, and you're going to receive him, and he will never depart from you. He will never leave you, and on the day of Pentecost, what happened? The fire fell again, and the Holy Spirit came to dwell in the midst of these people. And Peter said, just like he's this huge rock, we're supposed to be living stones, and we're supposed to be the temple that people see day in and day out. We can respond in mercy. We're taken from the blindness into sight, from darkness into light. An analogy back to Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, light for the Gentiles, the Messiah is the light for the Gentiles, opens the blind eyes and frees the captive. We're a people belonging to God. Those are your options. So what are some steps to forgiveness? Let's look at these just briefly. I I know my time is just about out, but that's okay. 1 Peter 2, verses 11 through 15. Actually, 11 through 25. Look at this. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that... Though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king or the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone, even including your president that you don't like right now. Oh, that wasn't in there, but it could be, right? 
Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king, the one who's in authority over you. Then look at verse 18. This gets even tougher. Another analogy. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example or a pattern, literally a pattern, that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to one, to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live by righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What are the steps? Number one, make a decision. Release the debt they owe you. And he gives two practical examples. He says, you're living in a corrupt government. These people, by the time that Peter wrote this, they were living in Rome. Who was the head of Rome at this point? Nero. How corrupt was Nero? Nero was a madman. He was insane. He killed most of his family. He had the Colosseums where he would take Christians out and he would feed them to the lions or do other atrocious things to them. And when that wasn't bad enough, when the Christians just wouldn't go away, do you know what he did? He literally would dip them in oil, sometimes dead, sometimes still alive. He would dip them in oil up to their neck. He would tie them to big, huge telephone pole-like things, these big, huge, po- huge, huge posts that lined the way to his palace and then lined the way to the Colosseum and then lined all the way around the Colosseum. And these people, dead and alive, were dipped in, up, to their, up to their neck in this pitch and this tar, this flammable material. And when Nero came along, they would light them. Human torches. And Peter doesn't say, overthrow that horrible man. What he says is, don't you understand? They owe a debt, but you can release it. He does the same thing. The slaves submit to your masters. I mean, we hate the concept of slavery. The Bible never says to overthrow slavery. Now, don't get me wrong. Slavery is wrong. And there are other places in the Bible where we see that slavery should be overthrown. But that was not their primary response here. 60 million slaves, and by the way, this is the oilata, not the dula. This is the people who who were doctors and lawyers. 60 million of them lived in Rome at that time. And he says, don't try to overthrow Rome. What you try to do at this point is be in submission to them. Does not mean we stay in an abusive situation. And it does not mean you have to feel like forgiving. He gives two... I mean, off-the-wall, off-the-wall examples. These, these examples are so wild, you think, oh, there's nothing that could be this bad that I would live by. And that's exactly why Peter gives it. He says, do you have someone you need to forgive less than this? If we're supposed to do this, then what are we supposed to do with those that have hurt us in some other way? It's an act of the will. It's a choice. Christ left us a pattern, an example you remember in, in first and second grade, I don't know if they still do this, but you remember the paper that had the ABCs already written out on it? I mean, the letters were huge. A, B, you could use your fist, C. 
and you were supposed to copy them. When they used to ta- teach writing, they would have that for cursive, but what I understand is they don't do that. They just teach them how to use their thumbs to text. So that's in first grade. Of course, they don't have to, the, the kids are teaching the teachers how to, to text. That's what they do. But you had the pattern, or a paint by number. I saw a picture one time, and it was an unbelievable picture, an oil painting that someone had done. And I said, wow, that is gorgeous. And they said, it's a paint by number. I said, there's no way that's a paint by number. Well, yeah, but this, this person took it and they, and they enhanced it a little bit. Turned out that they're, a, they're an artist that has things hanging in the, the Metropolitan, Metropolitan Gallery in uh, New York. And they had taken that and made this beautiful masterpiece out of this piece of cardboard. The Lord says, I've given you a pattern to do a masterpiece. Luke 23, 34. This is what Jesus said. Release the debt that they owe you because Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. They knew they were killing him. They knew that they were committing murder. They knew that they were executing an innocent man. But what they didn't know was that he was the son of God. Jesus did not say that they were right. But if we don't forgive them, if we do not release the debt they owe for the evil they've done, we are the prisoners. Did you get that? We're the ones who are held captive by our hatred and our bitterness and those passions that run through, not the guilty party. Let me say a couple things here. It does not mean we deny wrong was done. When you forgive does not mean that you deny that wrong was done. Let me also say, it does not mean we must personally go and express forgiveness every time. But we need to understand something. Time does not heal all wounds. Chip Ingram says it this way, it is choosing to release any plan or desire for retribution and to ask the Lord to treat the offending person in the same way the Lord treated you. To ask the Lord to treat that person who has offended you the same way you've been treated by the Lord. Here's number two. After you make the decision, release the debt, align your desires, regularly pray for them. Regularly pray for them. Just because you take the first step does not mean your feelings will go along with it. That's a choice. Now, your feelings sometimes lag behind that. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. Anybody here ever had buyer's remorse after you buy a big item the next day or two? You think, oh my, what did, what did I do? Anybody ever had that? Yeah. If you've worked on the car business, you, you experience it a lot. People come back three days later and they say, I bought this car and I really can't afford this car. I'll never forget the first time that I had to make a house payment. Kathy and I had been married. We bought this house. It was a corner lot. Uh, three bedrooms, one bathroom in Kansas City. It was in a horrible neighborhood. Didn't have central air, but it was a nice house. Huge tree-lined lot. And the first month that I, made a, that I was going to make a payment, I thought, what in the world have I done? $96 a month for 12 years. Who in the world can afford this for a house? I'm, I'm insane. No one will ever pay a payment like this for a house. I looked at Kathy and I said, we're going to go broke. There's no way we can do this. Yeah, some of you are laughing, right? Did you hear the average payment now is over $1,500? Even with the economy bad, the average pay, house payment is $1,500 for 30 years. And the new things that they're rolling out is they're, st- they're talking now about 40-year payments because in 30 years it's just not low enough. Align your desires. How do you do that? When those feelings come up. Because it's a vicious cycle. And the feelings will resurface and many Christians think I need to ask for forgiveness again. This is what you do. Look at what Matthew 5.44 says. Jesus is speaking. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? 
Because when you begin to pray, and, and there are a couple of different ways. There are what they call imprecatory psalms in the Old Testament. When I used to pray for my, those who persecute me, that's what I would pray. I mean, David wrote them. I get to pray them, right? And basically, the imprecatory psalms say things like, Lord, please take their arms, break their arms off their body, and beat them with the bloody stumps. That's what they're imprecatory. I mean, you think that that's, that's really about what it is. There's one of them that says, take this big, huge hook and hook them through the mouth and drag them over the ground. That's the kind of prayer I like to pray for my enemies. I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind. And over time, I realized that's not what God would have me to pray. David was being honest. It was his heart. But when you begin to pray for blessings on those who have cursed you, it's just like what Paul says in Romans 12, 20. If your hung, enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Overcome evil with good, it says in verse 21. And you say, this can't possibly work. I'm here to tell you that it will work. There was a man, Jerry. I worked at MetLife for a couple of years. I was a trainer for some of the agents. I was an associate branch manager at MetLife. And when I worked at MetLife, uh, it was interesting. Jerry was Jewish. And Jerry heard that I was a Christian, and he, and he walked up to me the first day, and he put his finger right in the middle of my chest. He was the other associate branch manager. There were two of us. He was the other trainer. And he began to thump on my chest, and he says, I hate Christians. Welcome. He didn't say the welcome part. That's what I thought in my mind. If I tried to invite people to a Christmas deal, he would say, you can't do that, and he would, he would try to write me up and take me in front of the company. I mean, anything I did, if I tried to pray in front of, uh, for my meal in the, the lunchroom, he would say that, that that should not be taking place in the lunchroom. It didn't matter what I'd do. Jerry was always on my case. He hated me. And when I had better months with my agents than he had, oh, my goodness, the next 30 days, I, always wanted, I, I just wanted him to win so I didn't have to put up with that. And I had another Christian, Gary, who was at MetLife with me, and he and I began to pray for Jerry. We would, he would come into my office, we would close the door, and we would just pray, God, take away the pain in Jerry's life, bless Jerry, Father, make him prosperous. We just began to pray things that we could not even imagine. I'd love to tell you that Jerry became a Christian. He did not, that I know of. But Jerry walked up to me just before I left, and he said, this place isn't going to be the same without you. And I said, yeah, I know you won't have as many Christians to kick around. And he said, listen, I didn't like you, but I have to respect the fact that you live what you believe. And I don't know what the Lord does with that testimony. But you know what? The last few months that I was there, even before he found out I was leaving, Jerry let off the pressure. And all of a sudden, he would say hi and he accidentally smiled twice. I know I saw it twice. He did. Align your desires. Regularly pray for them. Here's the last one. Embrace God's deliverance. Replace hurt. Replace hurt with joy. Embrace God's deliverance. There'll come a day when you see the person who hurts you the most and the old feelings, that anger, the malice, the frustration, the fear, the hatred, they'll be changed. And God will do a work in you. It does not mean that they will not have to answer to the Lord, but you will experience healing here and now. Get that? They will still answer to the Lord for what they did. That's not your problem. You will experience this healing and this transformation. Colossians 3.13 encourages this. It says, bear with, one and, with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. We've received mercy. 
Charles Stanley has written a book called The Gift of Forgiveness. It's, a, it's an incredible book, and he has a quote, and, and he just says just a couple things. Several things will occur once the forgiveness process is complete. First, our negative feelings will disappear. We will not feel this the way we used to feel when we run into these people on the street or in the office. Harsh feelings may be replaced by feelings of concern, pity, or empathy, but not resentment, not anger, not hatred. Secondly, we will find it much easier to accept the people who have hurt us without feeling the need to change them. We will be willing to take them just the way they are. We will have a new appreciation for their situation once the blinders of resentment have been removed from our eyes. Third, our concern about the needs of the other individuals will outweigh our concerns about what they did to us. Their need. We will be able to concentrate on them, not on ourselves or our needs. He goes on and talks about forgiveness as a process, and it's painful, but there is a result. There is a change. Folks, let me tell you what. The basics of a relationship, much of it comes down to this, choosing to forgive. And you, the steps to that is to make the decision, release the debt that they owe you, align your desires, regularly pray for them. But then the last one is to, to embrace God's deliverance and to replace that hurt. To replace that with joy. And you say, well, I just don't understand that last part. The other two I can understand. Okay, it's an act of the will, and it's praying for them, but how do I replace that? And the best example of that is by doing something proactive that God can use to replace that pain with joy. Uh, let me give you an example. Pastor Wang Sun, uh, Wang Wan Sun from Korea. In 1948, the Communists had come into his hometown. He lived near the 38th parallel. And the communists came in. And he had two older sons, Matthew and John. This man was a pastor. He loved Jesus Christ. His sons were tremendous witnesses. Uh, I think they were 17 and 19, 1948. And his two sons were out one day. They were working in the field. They were minding their own business. And the communists came through. And there was a, there was a young man, Cheng son, a Chai son. Chai Sun, I'm sorry. And Chai Sun saw his sons there, and he says, I'm a communist, and they said, we're Christians. And he said, I'm a communist, and I rule you. And he said, we're Christians, and we love Jesus. And he said, I'm a communist, and I could kill you. And they said, though you slay us, we will always love Jesus Christ. And without any trial, without any tribunal, Chai Sun took his rifle and killed Matthew and John in the field executed them. Sometime later, the communists left, and the people came back into the city, and they, they realized what had happened, and they found Chai Sun, and they brought him into the, in for a trial, because it was not a military action. It was literally just a murder as an execution, and they had witnesses because others had been in the field and watched the exchange and the testimony of these that tried to win Chai Sun to the Lord as he killed them. And the pastor was there, and his 13-year-old daughter was there, and he listened to the testimony, and finally Chai Sun got on the stand, and he said, I'm guilty, I did it, and I know what my punishment will be. And the pastor stood, and he said, if someone must be executed, will you execute me and set him free? And the judge said, I can't do that. He said, someone needs to die, but I don't want this young man to die. I believe that he has something of value. And if you won't execute me, 
Can I ask that you won't execute him? And would I ask that you give him parole? Would you give him a pardon sentence is really what I want, but if you won't pardon him, will you parole him? And they said, why would you want this young man pardoned? And this is what he said. If you will pardon him, if you'll give him a full pardon, I will adopt him as my son and love him as if he were born into my family. And the judge said, I've never seen love like this. And they pardoned Chai's son. And he became the pastor's son and lived with a 13-year-old daughter. And one day, about two years later, he came in and the pastor came in and Chai's son was reading the Bible and weeping. And he said, why would you do this for me? Pastor, why would you do this for me? He says, it's because that's what Jesus did for me. I was guilty, and Jesus took me in and made me part of his family. Chai's son accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. Today in Korea, Chai's son's son is the pastor of the church where his father, pastor's son, was a pastor for many years. And Chai Sun's son now, the grandson of this pastor, if you will, because he adopted him as the pastor of that church. All because one man chose to forgive. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? We serve an awesome God, a powerful God, who can change your hearts. And we're going to sing a song in just a minute about being one in Christ. And the truth is, I asked you to picture that person at the very beginning of this message, of this time that we were speaking, and I want you to think about that. I want you, during this time, this prayer that I give, I want you to ask the Lord to do the first step in you, to make the decision, to make the choice, to forgive that person. And then for the rest of the prayer, I want you to pray for that person, to begin to align your feelings, your desires, your emotions with that decision. Father. Oh, Father, we need you. We are so unforgiving. And because of it, we miss so much of the goodness and the grace that you gave to us, the mercy you extended to us. Break down the barriers, Father, between those who have harbored bitterness, resentment, anger, hatred. Father, may this be a day that they walk across the, the auditorium if they need to, to ask for forgiveness to share love, because we are one in you, Father. Make us one. Thank you for mercy when we did not deserve mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.